Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element, with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. I'm Gabriella. I'm stepping in for Dina this week and I'm very excited to be talking to David B. Seaburn about nurturing family functioning through communication, storytelling and listening. So Dave entered the field of marriage and family therapy in 1986 and was the assistant professor of psychiatry and family medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center and he has written over 60 papers and chapters. But David is also a fiction writer and has written nine novels, including his latest book, Give Me Shelter. Hi, welcome to the show. That's Good quite to be a, here, Gabriella. Quite a bio. Oh, thank you. Um, but that's not quite enough for us. Do you mind um, introducing yourself um, in a bit more detail so we can get to know you a bit better? Well, I uh, live near Rochester, New York, and um, my wife and I uh, have been married for 51 years. And uh, we have two daughters who live, uh, one lives just down the street, her, she and her husband, and uh, two little boys, five and three, and a newborn daughter who is three weeks old. Her name is Leona. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Our, thank you very much. We're very excited. And our other daughter lives about 10 minutes away, and our, her, our, she and her husband have two daughters who are 14 and 12. Uh, so we get to see our grandchildren uh, quite a bit, and they form a big part of our our daily living. So mm. that's the that's kind of the the foundation of things uh, on on my end. Mm. Um, it's it must be lovely to have such a you know quite a large and close family. Oh yeah, it is. yeah, mm. it is. It's it's uh, uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's to be a grandparent and have your grandkids close by is a real gift. Uh, that wasn't the case whenever we were raising our two daughters. Our our families lived in another state and it was just a long enough drive that they could only come to visit maybe three times a year. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought that was fine until uh, I became a grandparent and realized that being a part of their lives and being able to be there for their events and participate in things that they do uh, makes a big difference for for me and my wife and for the kids as well in terms of them having some connection with that, uh, you know, second generation ab above them. So, yeah, it's pretty special. Mm, that's great. So um, we're going to do a section next called Have You Met Dave? That's where we get to know you through some of your favorite things. Uh, so the first thing I'd like to know is uh, what's your favorite genre or what's a genre that you really like? Uh, literary genre, I mean, writing genre would be literary fiction, uh, mm -hmm. because, I mean, that's what I write, but I also like reading it because it's uh, character driven and, mm -hmm. uh, I'm always interested in the development of characters and, uh, how you bring them together and what happens whenever they do come together. That's the way I learn about the characters that I'm, uh, writing is having them interact with each other under difficult circumstances and see what they say and what they do and, Oftentimes, that's a discovery for me that helps me uh, uh, make this story come alive. Interesting, interesting. Um, and what about for a movie? Well, I I would have to pick an old movie, Cool Hand Luke, starring Paul Newman from 1967. And the reason I picked that is that uh, that was the first uh, time I went out with my eventual wife. We were in high school at the time. And uh, she had invited me, actually this is embarrassing, but she had invited me to go to a, a dance and I was petrified at the thought of going dancing. And so I said, well, I'd love to go out, but could we go to uh, a movie instead? So we drove, we lived in Pennsylvania at the time and it was a big deal to go into the big city, which was Pittsburgh. And we went to see the movie Cool Hand Luke and uh, we started dating after 
that and eventually married. And uh, so that's been a favorite movie throughout the years. And did you ever take her dancing? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we have danced quite a bit uh, since those days. So I, I, I think I made up for my, <laughs> for, for my lapse in uh, following through with her invitation at the time. She was more generous than I think most girls would have been <laughs> uh, in letting me off the hook back then. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. Yeah. And it, and it worked out anyway. So. Yes, it did. As far as I can tell, it's, you know, mm-hmm. 51 years, you know, <laughs> never can tell. Yeah. Um, and do you listen to any podcasts? Yes. I, as a writer, I, I there's a, a few that I really like. Writers on Writing is a really good uh, one that comes from uh, California here. And uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's interviews with uh, uh, writers and uh, discussing their work and how they go about uh, what they do. Hmm. And another one is a British uh, one called Writer, Writer's Routine. And the interesting thing about that one is that uh, they focus on literally what do, what do they do, what kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, what kind of um, thoughts they use, what's their writing routine, what's on their desk, uh, how do they go about thinking about what they're doing and uh, what's the average number of words they write per day and all of those kinds of things, which are kind of interesting to hear and uh and uh, learn about other people's routines. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any, I guess, similarities between them or are they all very different? I would say they're all uh, different in, um, in particularly the way they go about uh, their daily routines. Some are really uh, focused on trying to make sure they get X number of words per day. Uh, Some start at a certain time and and, uh, go end at a certain time. Others write uh, at different times of the day. Some don't write every day. Some people don't care how many words they write. Some people work from an outline, but happily most writers uh, that I listen to don't work from an outline, which I don't. I, 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 uh, that's just not the way I'm able to function. If I had to outline a whole book before I wrote it, I would never be able to do it. I discovered as I, as I go along. So it's, it's quite interesting to hear them talk. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I feel like, um, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer, but I feel like it's, it's very daunting, I think, to, to spend so much time, you know, creating something. So, um, interesting to hear that everyone has such different ways of going about it and I'll have to give it a listen. Maybe it'll spur me into writing something one day. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really quite helpful to listen to what other, uh, people, uh, say about how they write, it makes it a little less uh, daunting, although it still can feel pretty daunting. The most important thing for me uh, that got me started in the first novel I wrote was that I realized I didn't have to know everything whenever I started. That made a big difference that so I could write my way into quite a few characters in a situation. I could start with that and write my way into the rest of the story, which, which helped me out a lot. Okay. Um, good to know. Um, and do you have a famous role model? Oh, this is so, I mean, this is so, uh, so standard kind of thing for an American to say, but, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln is, is, uh, is, a uh, a, a role model for me. I think because of his, uh, struggle with, uh, emotional problems and depression and, uh, the difficulties he faced, uh, with all the kind of opposition and yet his, his uh, uh, integrity and, and what he tried to do are are, are always a uh, you know so I I read a lot of, of biographies and other things about him, but I, there are others. I mean, Bob Dylan is another <laughs> is another role model in terms of uh, creativity and uh, longevity and productivity and all of those kinds of things. So uh, different ends of the spectrum. Mm, I think it is good to have a variety of role models. I don't think that you could ever. Um, pick one person and say, this is the perfect person, right. but just take aspects of each person and say, I really like that person's work ethic and this person's creativity. Right. Right. Um, and it changes throughout mm. your life as, uh, uh, you know, as well at different points in different times, you need to different kinds of, uh, North stars to follow. And, uh, so it varies from whenever you're a youngster to whenever you're older, like I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what about a course that you have completed? Um, 
Well, let me, I, whenever I was thinking about that, when we were talking a little bit earlier, I was thinking about a course that uh, I designed that I felt particularly proud of whenever I was mm. at, uh, at the university uh, and I was running the, the uh, family therapy training program. I had the opportunity to design the master's degree program in uh, marriage and family therapy, uh, working with the state and working with the university in terms of putting together course design and clinical practica and, and things like that. And so that's a course that uh, I designed or completed in that sense, which I am uh, proud of. It's a program that's now well over 20 years old and uh, has a good reputation and is, is going strongly as uh, uh, even though I've uh, long retired from the, from the whole program. Mm, it, it's a great program if they're still using it, you know, 20 years later. You right. Know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, they've innovated and changed things. And uh, as, as they should with any, anything, any educational endeavor should be growing all the time. Mm, yes. Um, we would certainly hope that, you know, the latest research is being applied and um, put into, the, you know, the courses. Otherwise, yeah. we're not learning anything new. That's exactly right. That's, as I think, what I designed long a long time ago and what's happening right now are probably not as uh, close to each other as, uh, as uh, I might have imagined. Uh, and that's good. Yeah. So we're going to start off with a few definitions. So we've got a nice um, firm grounding for what we're going to be talking today. So um, I'd love to know what you think a family is. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I did, I wrote a, a co-authored a book a very long time ago that was really uh, for physicians uh, working with families. And at the time we came up with a definition that uh, a family is a group of people who are related either biologically, legally, or emotionally. Mm -hmm. So biological is obvious, legal by adoption of things like that. And emotional is, uh, is pretty wide open in terms of attachments people uh, feel with one another. Um, another way to think of it too is a family is whatever a person says is their family. I think it really comes down to the kinds of uh, uh, emotional attachments over time that are meaningful, that are sustaining, that are nurturing, and that uh, uh, survive with the uh, test of time. Mm. And do you think that our definition of family has changed over the years? Absolutely. I mean, uh, whenever I first started in the field, uh, most of, you know, everybody was still going with the idea of uh, two parents, family, two parents, married um, parents in, in the household with two children, typically. And um, even at the time that that was still being focused on, uh, statistically, in the United States anyways, that was really a minority uh, structure for a family. And of course, now it's a very, very different with same-sex couples and, uh, you know, uh, children coming to the world not uh, in, in as many different ways as you can imagine now with the advances in science and things like that. Uh, so I think the structure of, of uh, family and the definition of family has uh, really evolved, but the importance of that particular grouping uh, still remains uh, as important, maybe even more important now because it's even a little more controversial about what family, what the family is and what's happening to it and will it survive and all of those kinds of things. But I think mm. uh, we've been to that kind of worry before. And uh, I think there's something very fundamental uh, uh, human necessity to uh, to uh, group together in a way that uh, can be defined as family. Hmm. And how how does how do you know groupings of families or how does groupings of people as a family how do they interact with society and how do they shape society? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's mutual. I think families shape society and society shapes families as well. I think that uh, it, I, you know. I, for, I think same-sex couples is a good example of that, and and um, and the adoption of children, uh, uh, or the uh, you know artificial insemination of women in same-sex uh, couples, changes the definition of family in a way that now so the social fabric is beginning to 
accept and understand. And I think that that uh, is is a very positive thing for what may be coming in the future for those children who are raised in those families so that uh, they have an experience of being nurtured in a way that I didn't have whenever I was growing up in a traditional family, and yet one that is validating and and uh, and creates a long-lasting effect on on uh, the next generation of, of, uh, of families. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's a struggle. It's a struggle in, in our, uh, you know, in our, in our society here. And I think it is in, in many other countries, but I think it's where the future is leading is, uh, is, uh, is a positive redefinition of family that's more inclusive. And I think that whenever that happens, then the larger social fabric usually follows. So how does effective communication contribute to uh, family functioning? Well, um, I mean, in a variety of ways. I think top of the list is it creates a sense of belonging. The better the communication in the family, the better people, the more people feel like they're connected and that they belong because they're contributing to the fabric of the family by how they're able to interact and, and, and uh, create a family, basically. I think it also um, fosters a sense of mutual respect. The better the communication, the more people respect each other. It's hard to have uh, effective communication without uh, being respectful of, of each other, of listening, paying attention, responding in a way that shows that you hear and that you respect what's being said. Um, I think it also helps create a sense of uh, value of people being valued, uh, helps develop a sense of personal identity. Um, and the more you have effective communication, even in the most mundane ways, the more you're exercising a muscle that helps you to be better able to address conflict whenever conflict arises. There's some interesting research, this is on, on marriage uh, communication by John Gottman, um, but I think it, it's, it relates to families as a whole too. He's followed couples for, you know, some, uh, sometimes over 20 years uh, and, and videotaping and analyzing their communication. And uh, what he, the interesting he's founding, found is that talking itself, even if it is conflictual kinds of talking, is a key. It's like keeping a machine well-oiled. Uh, so the more communication, the more that that's a normal part of what goes on in the family, uh, the more uh, the family is able to communicate uh, effectively whenever they really are facing uh, hardships. Unless mm-hmm. that's the case, the, 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 the more family is stuck whenever they're facing difficulties because they haven't had practice at, at normal ways of communication so that whenever abnormal things come up, uh, they, they don't have uh, an effective way to start the process. Okay. But I also imagine that there are different types of communication and some are better than others. Uh, For example, in my family, uh, my partner pointed out that we all tend to talk at each other, but we don't actually respond to what we're actually, we're each talking about. Um, And so uh, we, we learn things, but we don't necessarily, I think, engage with each other. So is that, is that, I'm guessing that's not a particularly effective communication style or is that okay? I mean, I think it's common. I think, uh, you know, I'm, it depends on, on on the family whether or not that ends up being effective. But I think that it's pretty common that people feel talked at rather than conversed with. Uh, and I think some of that has to do with, uh, you know, the uh, lack of skill at uh, listening. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, as a consequence, people talk louder and push harder hope that they will be heard uh, and the other person may be waiting for the opportunity to say what they have to say rather than listening to what the person is saying to them. Listening is really a tricky thing. I mean, it's more than just hearing. It's more than being quiet and and uh, you waiting until the person is done. There needs to be some communication in response that indicates that I heard you. You know, uh, even if it's you know, simple things like I can't, you know, I can't believe you're feeling like that or I'm sorry you're feeling like that or I never knew that or tell me more. I didn't understand what you were saying uh, or wow, 
I had no idea. I mean, there's lots of different ways to communicate back that you have been listening. So listening is really involves communication from the other person as well to indicate that they heard. Uh, and if the person doesn't feel like they've been heard, then they're going to talk louder and uh, uh, trying as much as possible to be heard, whether they're a child or an adult, uh, they'll persist in that kind of, uh, of communication, even if it failed. So when you're trying to be more effective at communication, is it just on the listener to be better at listening? Um, or, you know, does the communicator, do they need to be better at communicating or is it sort of a shared responsibility? I think it's both. I mean, a person who communicates, um, who communicates in vague terms, who uh, communicates not their feelings, but their accusations, you know, rather than I feel, I'm feeling sad, they say, you make me angry, you know. There's more of a, of an attack mode rather than a, a speaking from the heart mode. Uh, so being able to speak from, you know, this is so common. Everybody hears this. Being able to speak from an I position, kind of communicating what you're feeling and what you're thinking and owning that rather than projecting onto someone else or accusing them or attacking or defending or any of those kinds of things. Uh, uh, help with the person being able to listen. It's difficult to listen if you're being put on the spot as the one who's uh, uh, created the problem for the other person. Um, so I, I think it is a two-way, definitely a two-way street. Um, listening, though, I mean, there's so much that can be done with listening, even if the communication that's coming at you is is difficult. I mean, being able to uh, listen and effectively speak from inside yourself and say, you know, I'm not exactly sure what you want from me whenever you're, whatever you're saying, what you're saying. I, it sounds like you're saying that I'm at fault somehow and I'm not understanding that. Um, so those are not easy things to do, but they're possible. And so the give and take between talking and listening is really, really, uh, really crucial. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before that being able to practice those things with the small things makes it easier when you're, you know, delving into the bigger problems. What are some other, you know, ways that people can practice or improve their communication? Well, let me say a little bit more about that one thing, because I think it mm -hmm. really is uh, the most crucial thing that there is in terms of practicing. And this is simple communication. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, uh, uh, two partners are in the house and one partner says to the other, I'm going to leave and go uh, do some grocery shopping. The other partner doesn't respond. That means something. Or the other partner says, so that means something. Mm -hmm. Or the other partner says, okay, great. Uh, I'll do some things around the house while you're gone or mm -hmm. have a good trip or whatever. Each one of those has a different kind of meaning, and those are the kind of micro-communications that go on in families all the time that either validate or say it's okay to approach or say, hmm, that person is not interested in what I'm saying, even that I'm leaving the house and going to the grocery store. They don't even look up from the newspaper. I mean, all of those things get experienced and interpreted in a particular kind of way by the person receiving uh, that message. And so... That there's a buildup of that over time in, in relationships. And after a while, a person may decide, I'm not going to say anything to the one who doesn't seem to want to listen. Or if they're going to be critical or say, so what, whenever I say something, I'm not going to say anything. Anything that eliminates the desire to communicate creates problems eventually whenever communication is necessary. So those kinds of things are, you know, very, very critical. The other kind of habitual things is I, you know, one of the things my wife and I uh, do, we, we have wine o'clock <laughs> between four and 4.30 or four and five. Each day, if we can, we sit down with a glass of wine and we just kind of talk about the day. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a, a regular routine uh, practice that we have that's, you know, not structured in any kind of uh, way other than we know that each uh, day at a certain time, we're going to be able to sit down together just to talk about what the day has been like and often just asking questions like, how are you doing? Or how was that 
thing that you did today or my mother-in-law has dementia. So my wife uh, is, uh, goes to see her and I want to see what that was like for her as well as how my mother-in-law is, is doing. So building in opportunities just to sit together ends up being a really good practice, uh, uh, in developing, uh, you know, you know, solid communication. And you also mentioned that, um, you know, it's one thing to say to, to do all these things, but it can be quite difficult. What are some barriers to effective communication and how can we overcome them? Well, I, you know, I think time, routine, schedules, uh, you know, people are busy. I mean, I think those, uh, you know, the demands on, on uh, families and, and individuals and partners is pretty extraordinary. And I think uh, more so each and every day. Uh, I think the kinds of stresses that people are dealing with uh, often make it difficult to see beyond right here to to be able to reach out to uh, someone else. Um, so I think that I think that those are the things that uh, make it most uh, most difficult is the the degree of demands on on uh, on 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 people in the family. And if you're raising children, uh, it's really hard because the focus, uh, is so extraordinarily, uh, attached to the development of, of kids that it's, uh, you know, it, it's very hard on, on partners who are trying to raise them to find time to communicate. I think that, uh, more than anything else is to be, is to be intentional about it. I think that it does, whenever those things are the case, it does make a difference to find a routine time. Sometimes it's at bedtime. Sometimes it's eating a meal together. Sometimes it can be any number of simple things where you are saying, uh, we're going to do this and we're going to just talk to each other. Even if it's like five minutes to check in and say, I'm here. Are you here? <laughs> we're both here together. How are you doing? You know, I'm worried about you. Maybe we can talk some more about whatever in, in the coming days. But I think that uh, intentionality is is uh, really important. I, I know that whenever I used to do a lot of couples therapy, I'm, sometimes I felt like there was the assumption that things would just happen, that, you know, the, the th you know, communication would just happen or that it just should be. You shouldn't have to work at it. You shouldn't have to plan it. You shouldn't have to set aside time. If you really had a good relationship, all those things would just happen. I don't think that's the case at all. I really think that uh, it takes a certain intentionality to find time and uh, do the communicating that you that you really want to do. And that communication should start with one person saying to the other, how are you doing? Rather than, let me tell you about me. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> really starts with the invitation to the other person to share uh, how they're doing and what's happening in their life. And I also imagine that um, this, this would be a bit different, you know, with kids rather than with partners. Um, so what kinds of, you know, changes in communication do you have to make for kids? Well, I mean, uh, you really have to pay attention to where they are developmentally. I mean, trying mm -hmm. to talk with a six or seven year old and trying to talk with a 16 or 17 year old are two extraordinarily different, uh, uh activities, <clears throat> but you still have to focus on being able to invite them into the conversation. Particularly uh, young kids need to experience uh, the adult as being really interested in their life and being willing to stop, sit down face-to-face -face and talk some about what happened in school or what they're enjoying or sitting and watching a show together. Any number of things that allow them to engage. It's also important to learn how to communicate appropriately uh, some adults treat children like they're little adults and that doesn't always work. It, they feel like that might be a respectful thing to do, but in many instances, it is sharing information that is way beyond their capacity to integrate, uh, or, or focusing on, uh, issues that are adult that are overwhelming and frightening to a child. So there needs to be this respect for uh, where the person, where the youngster is developmentally, and what uh, what they can and cannot take in, and and uh, and how to engage them around the things that they're interested in, and to respect the fact that they have ideas and thoughts of their own, and um, 
you know, there needs to be room for that. Uh, with teenagers, it's what I, 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 you know, whenever, whenever our daughters became teenagers, they were really less interested in talking to us. I mean, they had friends and stuff to do. And my strategy was simple and that was to be available. I tried to just be around, uh, you know, I didn't kind of think, well, you know, they're off and gone or whatever. I really tried to be around when they got home or whenever, uh, they came, uh, you know, back from a, a date or we're out doing something because the, the moments where there's communication were really unpredictable. And if you weren't there or available or just sitting around, they weren't going to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. if you weren't taking, uh, taking them somewhere or just sitting at the kitchen table when they're in the house. Uh, sometimes those kind of communications would uh, would just never happen because you weren't weren't available. So I I remember working hard to try and be uh, available and interested. And uh, the reverse, reverse was often the case with them. If if I uh, you know if they were old enough, I would t- tell I would start by telling them about my day rather than saying how was school. Uh, I would say, wow, this happened to me today. And before I knew it, they would be talking about what's happening to them. So you learn how to change the way you engage uh, youngsters depending on where they're at and what their developmental capacities are and things like that. And if you want to communicate with, say, a teenager and they're just not interested at all, you know, um, as I'm sure I was, you know, being there but not actually listening um, or not really understanding why something was so important, you know, is there anything that you um, can do to you know, facilitate that? Or is it just you have to wait until they're ready? I think waiting until they're ready is the number one thing, as hard as that is to do. I I think watching for openings is, is, is very important, but how you go through that opening is sometimes very um, tricky. I mm-hmm. think the whole question and the answer thing is often what parents fall into is, you know, how was your day? What did you do? What did this, blah, 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 blah. And they really aren't interested in that. Um, sometimes what I would do with one of our daughters uh, who was uh, less likely to talk, we had one daughter who would tell us more than we wanted to know <laughs> and the other who was slower to talk about things. And in the evening, you know, you know, I'd say, let's go to the mall. And we would just go to the mall and uh, maybe do a little shopping or not. And we would talk. I mean, it would just happen. Uh, so finding the, the, I think being able to do something together is often more effective than sitting down and saying, let's talk or, you know, let's do whatever. So anything. And often I had daughters they, and they really liked to shop or go do things like that. And uh, so that's another thing of being available, being willing to do something that uh, you may or may not had been the number one thing you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely remember having a lot of conversations, important conversations in the car with my parents. Yes. So um, yeah. I guess be a chauffeur is an important one. Right. And hopefully listening to the, to, to some music at the same time, mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. helps a lot if you're, you're tuned into exactly what they're uh, enjoying and hopefully you're enjoying too. Mm. So you're also an author. So... Um, you know, that entails some storytelling. So how does storytelling, you know, play into um, communication and into, you know, forming those family connections? Well, I think, I, I, you know, it's interesting. There's research on this that, uh, that's, that suggests that children who know stories about older members of the family uh, tend to be more resilient and more self-confident um, and better able to handle stress. And I think part of that is it's like they have this safety net of history and of people and a sense that they're a part of that, that, uh, that builds up a, a, a feeling of confidence inside. But I, I do think that storytelling does a variety of different things in a family. First off, it really differentiates the uniqueness of your family from other families. And I think that's important that there are certain things that define who you are as a family uh, that is different than other families. And I, I often think of one of the best ways to uh, uh, that that comes up is go to a holiday dinner 
at someone else's house and mm-hmm. see if you can figure out what they're talking about. Because there's so much that goes on the shorthand that's unique to that family and defines them that an outsider is kind of left not knowing exactly what they're talking about. In my family, whenever I was growing up, there was an aunt who every time we, we celebrate Thanksgiving here in November, and um, every time we got together, all the whole extended family, she would say, if you, if you had a million dollars, you couldn't eat any better than this. Well, you know, after a while, we just laughed about that. And then she had long since died in my family. If you sit down, someone might will usually say, if you had a million dollars, and everybody would just laugh. You don't even have to say the rest of it because you remember the story. Now, someone else who isn't a part of the family doesn't know what that is all about, doesn't know that who the aunt was, doesn't know the history of all that. And so isn't really a part of that family, but the people laughing are part of the family. And it gives them a sense of, of uh, you know, being together and being one. So stories help differentiate uh, our family from someone else's family, which creates actually a healthy kind of boundary. The second thing is that uh, creates storytelling is creates this communal belonging, uh, uh, binding members uh, and creates uh, a sense of community of memory. Uh, and certain stories really help um, the, the community, the family, to understand how we deal with transitions. So many stories are about births, deaths, weddings, celebrations, holidays, all these things that come and go. And in the telling of those stories about what happened and, and uh, how it happened and what people did, whenever so-and-so died 60 years ago and then someone else died 20 years ago, you start to learn this is the way we did deal with things. This is the way we grieve. This is the way we remember. This is the way we honor people. So there's a sense of communal belonging that uh, arises because of being able to tell uh, the, the kind of stories that link across generations. At a simple level, the stories also help families understand uh, how we go about being a family. You know, this is the way you behave when a company is around. Uh, this is what you do whenever you're at the restaurant. Uh, these are the things that we believe and hold dear. These are our hopes and expectations. Um, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, from the simplest uh, things, these are the uh, things that are valued most. These are the ways of behaving that are valued. Some of that can be great. Some of that can be problematic, but there's definitely, it's through the telling of, of stories about, uh, you know, how, how people did things that we learn how to be uh, a family. And I think the other thing that I would focus on is that um, storytelling uh, helps you, helps develop personal identity. I mean, the stories that are told about individuals within the family, especially children as they're growing up, really begin to define define them. Whenever I hear a parent uh, say I'm at the mall or something, uh, you know, uh, talk about a kid always uh, messing up, they're telling a story about that kid that's going to have a lasting influence. Uh, if they're applauding a child for even small things, they're telling a different story about them. Uh, one of our granddaughters uh, was born premature and almost uh, died. And um, the nurses uh, would use words like she's mighty or she's feisty. And we picked up on that. We, we still refer to those words and to that circumstance that she went through. And she's 12 now. And it was part of focusing not on her vulnerability, but more on her strength and telling that story as a sign of how strong she was that she uh, made it and lived and was able to thrive. So uh, we... we uh, you know, stories help define the members uh, of a family and uh, uh, hopefully doing that in a, once again, a conscious way. Uh, mm. you know, adults can really do a good job in helping shape in a positive way a youngster's sense of who they are, who they might be. So those are some of the ways that I think that storytelling can make a really big difference in, in, uh, in effective communication and that all these other things that help families be healthy. But what happens if the story that you're telling about someone, um, say the child who is told they're no good at anything or family traditions that maybe aren't as healthy or as effective as 
um, you know, um, you know, some parenting methods that maybe aren't as effective or as, um, good as they could be, you know, newer methods or different methods. Well, uh, you have, uh, you probably are aware of this, that, uh, 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 Michael White at the uh, Dulwich Center in Adelaide uh, uh, developed, was one of the key developers of narrative therapy with uh, individuals and families. And a lot of the focus of that particular approach is um, to unpack or deconstruct uh, the negative stories that people grow up with and, and live with. Um, and so there's always exceptions to the rule. There are always other stories. There are, you know, whenever someone would uh, come in to see me, for instance, for therapy, and they would tell me that, uh, you know, I'm an alcoholic. That was their story. And it would take me a while to get to listen to their narrative enough that I was able to say, wait a minute, tell me about this or tell me about that. And I would learn that more than an alcoholic, they actually had been a pretty good parent or they were successful at something or whatever. And you start to expand their options of the stories that they can remember or tell about themselves based on actual things that happened in their life. And it's a rare person who doesn't have exceptions to that dominant story that may have been uh, hammered into them whenever they were uh, they were young. So, um, you know, I think it's important in the beginning not to start to tell those negative stories about a youngster or project them onto them. And I think that uh, uh, the way out is to be able to identify uh, the part, the places where that person uh, is different than the than the dominant story that's always been told about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the practice habit um, debrief section, um, we talk about, you know, things that you do in your own life um, that you find help uh, with your communication and having your family bonds. Um, so what is a particular practice that you recommend? Uh, if at all possible, uh, one of the things that we really, that we do now that has been fabulous is uh, just about every single Saturday, our daughters and our grill- grandchildren all come to the house, to our house, and spend wow. most of the afternoon. We have lunch. The weather's nice. They can swim. Uh, the older ones love playing with the younger ones, and they go downstairs and play. Uh, the adults can sit around the table and, and talk. Uh, we can play with the kids and uh, in the process, we're weaving together a sense of uh, being family, uh, sharing a meal, uh, telling good stories, uh, identifying and, you know, and applauding uh, a- any positive thing that we see happening or something that's like our five-year-old uh, grandson uh, just got his yellow belt in karate. So we got a cake. And everybody came and they played and we had cake and all of that kind of stuff. But building in a regular times to bring together whoever you can bring together that you identify as your family, just to have that communal, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think is a real reinforcing thing. And I know that's sometimes, I mean, I, I think it's more important now than maybe it has been a number of years because of the impact of COVID in which we were pretty much isolates uh, having a great deal of difficulty uh, connecting with each other. One of our grandchildren was born during COVID. It was very difficult because we couldn't, you know, we we didn't get to really be with him uh, for weeks and weeks. uh, So that was very hard. So anything that uh, I would recommend anytime, any kind of regular getting together uh, can only be uh, helpful for families who really uh, want to develop a, a closer bond with each other. And that's something that we try to do. Um, I mentioned the wine o'clock that my wife and I have. Uh, other people can do other things, but I, I, I do think that um, creating the routine of coming together ends up um, being a, a, a remarkable health, a remarkably healthy way to strengthen family communication and and family uh, bonds. 
Mm. Yes, you're making me think about the fact that um, my family, um, we generally just get together for birthdays um, and Christmas. Um, so I think I need to start initiating a few more uh, things with them. Um, I did invite myself around for dinner at my dad's house the other day. So I think that's one way to do it. And then, um, yeah, I need to work on that a bit more. Um, I think, as you said, you know, I think it's, if you don't have a regular routine, it can be hard to implement um, and to remember to do it. Absolutely. So, yeah. I have to make it a regular I mean, thing now, for myself. Yeah, you know, if you have to Zoom, uh, that's another way to... Uh, to connect, there's a group of friends of mine, my uh, friend family, that we live all around the country, and three or four times a, a year we just gather up and have a Zoom uh, gathering, and uh, it actually works pretty effectively. Uh, any yeah. kind, any kind of means of getting together face to face, I think, ends up being a, really a valuable practice. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised you're still doing it after COVID. Um, I, I did a little bit of that during COVID, but I found it hard to maintain. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I think we're, we were able to do it mainly because we're so far away from each other. So there's no other mm -hmm. way to do it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and have fallen to really enjoying it. And uh, there's just a handful of us, five of us who mm -hmm. do it. And everybody checks in and kind of talks about what's going on. It's a really nice way to reconnect uh, in a more personal way. Hmm. So we've also got some questions from the audience today. So um, our first question is, in a multicultural or mixed marriage uh, families, language barriers or cultural differences may impact communication. How can families celebrate and integrate diverse cultural practices through storytelling and communication? Wow, that's a big one. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is to not try to melting pot it. Uh, and by that, I mean, I kind of uh, make everything smushed together into uh, uh, a single kind of identity. Uh, in the United States, we talk about the we're a melting pot, which I don't like because it kind of means that your identity uh, disappears into this amorphous thing called being an American. Uh, I think it's much better to think of families as stews where there's all these different things and you put them all together and they have a, a particular flavor that's unique. So I, the first thing I would think is being able to, if it isn't already done, being able to honor the fact that there are differences and that uh, those differences are, are, are part of what make a family beautiful and those differences in different cultures uh, come with in different stories, legends, myths, all the kinds of things that help define uh, who a particular person in the family may, may be. And being able to uh, identify that, celebrate that, whether it's through stories, dance, music, clothing, all the different things that uh, may help identify who a person is and where they've come from within the family, I think ends up being really important. So I like the idea of accenting um, differences. Uh, the differences are, are a good thing and they need to be celebrated. And in the celebration of the differences within one family, uh, you're, uh, you're creating a new sense of what family is uh, rather than deciding we need to, that there's a dominant, there's a dominant culture here and we all need to kind of find our way to fit into that. I think it's much better to be able to identify the differences and celebrate them as, uh, as best you can in a lot of different, and, you know, differences uh, in holidays and, uh, you know, uh, celebrating uh, uh, holidays that may not be your own and that kind of thing. I think I end up uh, helping a lot if I'm getting the gist of what the person is, is asking about. I mean, I think I, I think that the, the, the question is really interesting because yeah, you've interpreted it one way and I, I was thinking about it in a different way. Um, yeah. so I'm, I'm half Chinese. Um, I'm half Dutch on the other side. So, um, I actually can't speak to my grandma, um, cause she speaks Cantonese and I don't. Um, and I find it very difficult to integrate into my Chinese side because, um, while the rest of the family do speak English, they mostly speak Cantonese to each other. Um, and I just find that I don't have much of a connection with them. Um, so 
it's 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 interesting i think um yeah you're saying to to appreciate everything is like a stew um appreciate the different cultural differences but i uh, as the non-dominant culture person i guess i i just find it hard to be accepted and to um be in that family because i don't know what's happening most of the time yeah that sounds really really challenging mm. and my, uh, one thought i had was uh whether or not um i mean does she can you cook together are there uh any we any... don't go ahead oh uh, we we don't really live in we, we currently live in different states um so we don't live close to each other and previously we lived in different countries oh, um cool. and um cooking would be interesting but i don't believe that they really cook oh <laughs> yeah Love. Mm. That's what I, 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 I do not have a good presentation for you whenever the barriers are that big. Uh, but it does point out how difficult it is because that's a part of who you are. And, uh, it, it, there are, um, you know, this is different and similar. My, my father's side of the family, I never was close to. Uh, and as the, not because there wasn't a language barrier or anything like that. It was more that there was so much conflict in that side of the family that the next generation, the cousins and all of that, uh, inherited this division. Uh, and so there wasn't a way to to cross that line. And um, I, al I always kind of felt like I wasn't permitted to, even though it wasn't said. And so, I, you know, I have uh, first cousins I wouldn't know if I ran into them in the street, you know, and I feel like I've been diminished by that, but, you know, I haven't exactly reached out to them over the years either, but that sense of not being able to, to attach to a part of, of your own family, I think it is extraordinarily difficult. I, I, I wish I had a helpful, other than learning the language or, which I can't even imagine trying to do, uh, I, I can't think of a good suggestion of how to bridge that golf that's a that's a really difficult one that's for sure has mm, anybody okay. ever made a good suggestion or said this is what you should do or is it not even talked about it's not really talked about um there are many other um issues with that my family on that side um i think in terms of language um cantonese is it's not the main language of of china so it's very difficult to find lessons in that um <laughs> it just gets worse and worse the more you talk about it. It's just yeah. really difficult. Mm. Yeah, that's really hard. And you don't see them very often or anything like that? No, not really. That's too bad. That's too bad. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I do I do think about the fact that I, I am missing, I guess, that part of my family sometimes. Yeah. Um, in fact, yeah. So I was just wondering. Um, I thought I'd put my own little um, story in there as well because yeah. yeah. I am fascinated by and I would love to, you know, get to know them a bit better. Yeah. Too bad there's not a bridging person who can uh, not only literally translate, but metaphorically translate uh, who who that side of the family is, what their mm. stories are, and uh, what their struggles are, what their triumphs are, even yeah. if you're not able to get it directly from them face to face. It would be wonderful to be able to have access to ch just that, who, who mm. they are. Yeah. I have spoken to my mom about that and yeah. she's given me some insight, but I think that there is a lot of um, familial tension that I, yeah. um, that, that there's also a barrier there. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I, I, I know what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, anyway, I, thank you. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. You go ahead. I was going to say chipping away over at it over the years with your mom, I think ends up being a really good thing, even though it might be difficult for her, it might end up being good for her to be able to say, you know, here's what makes it difficult. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And thank you for, um, yeah, that suggestion. I'll, um, I've been doing that a little bit and I'll keep going. Yeah. Um, and thank you for letting me air my, um, my thoughts. Oh. <laughs> um, our, our second audience question today is, how can families encourage open and inclusive communication, ensuring that everyone's voices are heard and valued? 
um, even when they have different communication styles? That's a big one. It's a long question. Right. And um, the hardest part of that question to me is ensuring that everybody's voice will be heard and respected or however it was stated because you kind of can't do that going in. It's mm-hmm. it's almost like how do I how do I share who I am and uh, how do I start to do this with my first goal being I'm going to respect the person that I'm talking to. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna share who I am with them in a way that gives them room to share who they are, and by demonstrating that I'm a person who's welcoming of who the other person is, perhaps they will do the same to me. But I mean, the only way you can go is to try and do for the other person what you hope that they will do in return in terms of communication. I know I've worked with lots of people who just, you know, wish that their so-and-so or whoever would just accept them for who they are. And there's no promise of that. Uh, when you start into communicating with somebody. But the best thing to do is to start by trying to accept who they are and where they're at and what they're about. And then you may get the same thing in return. My wife is really good at that. She she really is good. If someone is unfriendly or whatever, she just decides, I'm going to learn what I can about that person. And I'm going to take an interest in them and I'm going to really show them how much I appreciate who they are and it always works. And then they, they, uh, um, they do, they reciprocate. So I guess what, um, so if I'm correct, uh, what you're saying is just to respect the other person and, um, you know, I guess act how you would like them to act to you and just hope that they will do the same to you, but yeah, no guarantees. There aren't any guarantees. I think they, uh, if you're initiating something, I think the initiation in that circumstance is less about, hey, I want to tell you about me and more about, hey, I really would like to understand who you are better than I do. Okay. And, um, okay. That's where I would start is putting mm-hmm. it out that way. It, it's hard for someone to be defensive whenever you're saying, I'm really interested in getting to know you better than I already know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what my recommendation would be, yeah. And our last audience question is, um, I often see families hanging out, but everyone focuses on their phones. Um, how can families create technology uh, boundaries to promote quality time and meaningful conversations? That's everybody's big question these days, that's for sure. Um, and adults do it as much as, as uh, youngsters do it when you're together. I mean, I see it all the time. Um, I mean, I, I think there are families that are very successful doing kind of no technology zones or times where you take your phones, everybody puts them in a little basket and they stay there until you're done eating or until you've done whatever it is that you're uh, doing. But the rules have to be set by uh, the people in the family who have the most legitimate authority. And usually those are the adults, but they have to also demonstrate that they're willing to do the same thing. Um, so I, I think I think setting some rules about how much, how long, how often uh, is hard. I've seen it in my own family with, uh, with our uh, grandkids. It's very hard. But I know my daughter and son-in-law with the, with the teenage uh, girls are pretty good at saying, you know, this is the amount of time you're going to be able to spend on that and then you're not allowed to do that for a while and where they huff and puff, which is their job is to, you know, protest what their parents want them to do. I, I really think that's just what your job is whenever you're that age. Uh, but they do it. And then the result is that, uh, is that there is more, you know, more connection, more opportunity to communicate and to do other things together. So I think literally uh, saying this is what we're going to do. And I mean, an actual, give me your phones, we're going to put it somewhere and we're going to do something uh, different for the next even 10, 15 minutes makes a big difference. But yeah, I think setting uh, rules around use of technology is really a big, big uh, responsibility of anybody who's in parent role these days. Mm. Thank you. Um, 
So we're going to move straight on to the open mic because we have 10 minutes left. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so we're going to move on to the open mic section. That's where the guests, uh, where you, the guest, um, get to talk about something that you're passionate about and it doesn't have to be related to our topic today. Um, so what did you have in mind? Uh, well, I'm a, a writer. I write uh, uh, fiction and literary fiction. And um, you know, there's no doubt that this is uh, an extension of I work with families and couples and kids for over 30 years. And uh, it's it's not a surprise that the fiction that I write is really the story of uh, families dealing with uh, difficulties, oftentimes extraordinary difficulties. Uh, I'm writing the novel that I'm, my 10th will be, I'm just finishing right now. Uh, there's a husband and wife who married for 40 years and the wife announces, that's it, I'm done. Uh, the husband, they separate, she goes looking for a long estranged daughter who has her own daughter. Uh, and the husband ends up with COVID. Uh, there's a girl who is pregnant and is a complicated situation. She really needs an abortion and lives in a part of the United States where she can't get one. Uh, they all have to kind of uh, uh, figure out how to come together to deal with some of these things. There's a, another family member whose husband was killed in a mass shooting uh, at a, in a store. So these are the kinds of things that uh, unfortunately end up being uh, fairly common uh, in this culture and they impact uh, families. So how do families come together in a meaningful way and bridge the gaps and and uh, find a way to, to make their way forward when things are extraordinarily difficult and uh, not everything ends up perfect. And some things end up being resolved and some things like in life don't end up being resolved. And most of my novels uh, have that kind of feel to them, although surprisingly, most of them also are fairly humorous. Uh, so the stories that I write reflect a lot of the work that I've done over the years, and they also reflect a lot of the things that I wrestle with personally uh, in my own attempts to make uh, meaning out of life experience and how you deal with certain things such as loss and time and the lack of time and uh, the pressures on on uh, 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 people to accomplish and how difficult that may be, and creating and maintaining relationships uh, in a long-standing way—all the kinds of things that are uh, the challenge and the re reward of being a human being. So those are the things that I spend uh, most of my uh, time uh, doing, and I enjoy writing. I, you know, I before I was writing fiction, I wrote other things for a long, long time going way back. And I fell in love with the idea of uh, language and uh, the creation of meaning through language. And uh, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about actually and in uh, storytelling and families is how do you create meaning for people and, uh, and how do you help people feel like they have a sense of meaning themselves. And uh, so meaning making, meaning create, creating, meaning finding ends up being a key part of why I write and gets reflected in what I write. And uh, I think it's a part of why people uh, came to me for therapy along the way is they're in a place where their life feels like it doesn't have the kind of meaning that they hoped it would because they're facing X, Y, and Z and being able to talk through uh, what's going on helps them uh, find the words and find the courage and everything they need to move things in a better direction. So that's, that's something I'm passionate about and have been for the last, I've been writing fiction for oh, about 22 years now. So uh, that's been a very key part of uh, carrying on what I had been doing for years and years before that. And I love how your, your books are informed by your, your background. Um, you know, I think that people, I mean, there are plenty of good writers who write really great relationships and, you know, really great characters, but I love that um, you do come at it with, I guess, more of a, uh, more of a, you know, a scientific background or more of a therapeutic background. Um, I think that's really great. Um, 
And the, the question we're all waiting for is, um, so uh, how many words do you write every day? How many words do I write Oh, geez. Well, I'm, I'm uh, one of the ones who does not count the number of words that I write every day. Uh, I have more of a, a, a scene by scene approach. And, uh, you know, if I'm working on a particular scene, whether it's a, uh, a chunk of dialogue between two people that's important uh, or a transition from one thing to another, sometimes being able to complete that is, uh, is enough. So some days it's only, you know, maybe a few hundred words and other times it could be a thousand words. Um, but I don't check how much I've done, uh, each day. It's more of a feeling. I do know mm -hmm. that I, I take, uh, Hemingway's recommendation is to always stop writing when you know what the next thing is that you're going to write. And sometimes I stopped in the middle of a sentence because I know that uh, where I'm going and I, then I don't have to start the next day wondering what the heck am I going to, uh, you know, where am I going from here today? Great. Thank you. You're welcome. And if um, people want to find out more about your books and you and your writing, uh, where can they find that information? At www.davidbseaburn.com. That's my Great. web. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes so everyone can find that. Great. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Dave. Thank you for having me, Gabriella. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.